0: Welcome to episode three of the Composer Happy Hour, presented by Whatever and Ever, Amen. If you have already listened to the first couple of episodes, you know what to expect. If you're a first-time listener, I am so happy to have you here. This podcast is pretty casual, a conversation between myself and composers that I find interesting. It's the kind of conversation you might have in a bar over a few drinks, the kind of conversations we used to have all the time, and that I've really been missing since COVID came into our lives. While many of us are getting our vaccines and there's some normalcy on the horizon, big crowded conferences where musicians can meet still seem like a world away. So, here we are. I guess the upside is that instead of this conversation being between two people, we get to share it with you. So... If you don't already have a drink in hand, now is a great time to hit pause and pour one for yourself. I should also note that if you're listening to the audio-only version of this episode, I would encourage you to find the video version at buymeacoffee.com slash whatever choir. That's buymeacoffee.com slash whatever choir. And again, that's where you can see the video version of this podcast. and some other great media as well. Either way, I'm glad you're listening. My name is Brad Pearson. My guest tonight is Mari Isabel Valverde, and this is the Composer Happy Hour. Uh, Mari, thank you so much for joining me tonight. How are you?
1: I'm doing pretty well, thank you. How are you?
0: I am just fantastic. I'm excited to be uh, having a drink with you and uh, hanging out and excited to just chat. I'm, I'm pumped up. All righty. Yeah. Tell us uh, what you have brought to happy hour today. What are you drinking tonight?
1: Uh, I feel like I should disclaim because okay. I, have, I have the tolerance of a 19-year-old. So okay. I, I might get tipsy over just a little bit.
0: I no problem
1: that's my full that's not a surprise to people I tell (laughs) you want to go get a drink I'll be like you mean like coffee right yeah right (laughs) um this is a gin smash with grapefruit and lime and uh this was my brother's recipe he's not a mixologist he's uh, a voice professor at a college but he is a um I guess amateur or like he, he likes making drinks. It's like, yeah, that's sure. one of his passions. So I followed his instructions to the best of my ability. Good. And I made myself a, a gin smash. What about you?
0: Nice. Uh, I am drinking, I, I mostly drink beer. Uh, and so that's what I'm having tonight. It is from Lagunitas brewing. It's a willetized coffee stout. So it's, um, a coffee stout aged in, uh, rye, bourbon barrels. And it's kind of boozy, uh, like 12.4%. So it's like bourbony, chocolatey, coffee-y kind of thing.
1: Wait, so is there caffeine in there?
0: Uh, I mean, there there might be some residual caffeine, but not, not enough to notice that you've got caffeine. Okay,
1: so we're pouring.
0: And the booze, I mean, the 12.4% would certainly counteract any uh, caffeine that's in there.
1: Okay, this is my first time, so hopefully it won't be a disaster.
2: Yeah,
1: <laughs> I'm already laughing because it's not coming out. <laughs> I'll cheers you when it comes. out.
0: if it was real happy hour, we would have people making drinks for us, and then we wouldn't have to worry about such a thing.
1: So there's a strainer in there. It's coming out slowly.
0: <laughs> I was is there, be- is there f- there's actual fruit in it that you muddled up? Is that, so that's the thing, right? It's just, that's caught on the strainer a little bit.
1: It's coming out slowly. <laughs> We're going to keep this because this, yeah. this is the real juice right here. There you go. It's, it's slowly coming out <laughs> It's, I told you I'm not an alcohol person. So it's all good. Well,
0: me. see, that's all the more reason that it's special to have you here uh, having a drink with us. Well, we can
1: I have anything else planned for today.
0: Great. Uh, we can start chatting while while the drink is uh, finishing. <laughs> um, <laughs> tell us, because uh, I I, uh, I never knew when I thought about starting this, I never knew how to get started with a conversation because the whole idea of the podcast was to sort of mimic uh, meeting people in a bar, right? At a conference or something. If we just, you know, saw each other in a crowded bar and said, hi, and we met and we started chatting, uh, what would that be like? But that isn't maybe the, you can't, you can't fake that, right? So I like to start uh, at the the beginning, like the real beginning. Um, Tell us when and where you were born.
1: So I am from Fort Worth, Texas. Did you say when?
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, September 1987. I'm a Virgo with Virgo rising and Pisces moon.
0: Also a Virgo. I'm September 12. Yeah. Uh, And what are your parents' names?
1: Santos is my mom and Edward is my dad.
0: Awesome. And what did uh, what do do they do, or what did they do when you were growing up?
1: Uh, my mom worked for the IRS. Okay. I don't think my mom ever applied for a job. She was hired and hired and hired and hired down the line, just because she was uh, bilingual, Spanish mm. and English. Um, the demand for that is a little <coughs> bit different than it is now. <laughs> sure. Uh, I think uh, there, there tends to be more stipulations and, and hoops to jump through to get as, as stable a stable of job as my parents both had. But that doesn't mean they didn't work very hard for that. Sure. Um, so my mom is from Corpus Christi and her family is for generations from Texas. So there's this Gloria Anzaldúa quote that goes, um, uh, I didn't cross the border. The border crossed me. Hmm. And that's very much my mom's situation. Um, My dad uh, had a very different upbringing. Both of my parents are Mexican-American. My dad's uh, father is from Mexico. He crossed the border around 1910, somewhere Hmm. around that. And... um, yeah. And my, my dad is from a family with lots of uh, brothers and sisters. And I think his father, I don't know if his father was a widower, but I know he had children from multiple uh, marriages. Hmm. I think he might've been a widower actually. Um, so my father it came from the second marriage and is one of the youngest of like 11. Wow. And um, and my dad was born in 1950. So I think his father must've been cl- around 50 whenever they had yeah. my, my dad. Huh. And uh, yeah, I could go on and on if you want me to.
0: <laughs> well, I'm, I'm interested. And so uh, was you, your dad came from a big family. You said you have at least one brother. Do you have other siblings?
1: I have only one brother, okay, and he's the only other musician in my family.
0: Yeah, so that's what I was going to ask you. You're both musicians, but uh, it doesn't sound like your parents were. Was music uh, a big part of the house growing up? I mean, were they musical?
1: Yeah, you know, I think my parents, for one reason or another, understood that singing to your babies was like a good thing. Yeah, and. Like my, my mom especially would sing to us like when we were super young. Um, my dad, and I think they were both in choir whenever they yeah. were like in high school. Yeah. Um, I, I know my mom talks about, they had to sing Age of Aquarius. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh-huh. um, yeah, that's their generation. Um, what else? Yeah, my mom, I, I I just like to kind of paint a fuller tapestry. My dad uh, w- grew up in a family where he was uh, like, his father changed his name from Miguel to Michael in order to mm. sustain a business and, and like keep business. And I think, I think that's, that was his name. And uh, they, Mike, it was Mike. Um, and uh, my dad was discouraged from speaking Spanish. Hmm. In the house. Whereas my mom, uh, who I understand to ha- to grow up in, in more poverty than my dad, um, my mom, her parents did not speak English at all, notwithstanding hmm. for, for generations that that family had been in Texas. And, you know, they didn't speak English.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: So my mom was uh, the translator and she Went to school in Texas and had to learn English and, mm. um, you know, experienced some racism. I think she told me that she got in trouble for bringing like a tortilla to like mm. for like lunch. Like she was, she had to like eat, eat lunch at, at her house. She had to walk home to eat lunch because she wasn't allowed to eat that, which sounds it's, absolutely ridiculous.
0: It sure does.
1: But that was the 50s.
2: Yeah.
1: So, um, yeah, it's it's really interesting talking to my parents. I I've lived with my parents uh, since twenty twelve. Mm. I moved back from I moved back home from San Francisco where I did my masters because I knew I could get work here. Yeah. Um I think I think I did it. I yeah. think this is it. I think all that's in there now is ice, but I'm gonna give it a more a couple more shakes. <laughs> I know this is hilarious. I'm I told you, I have no experience. That's, hey,
0: you know, whatever. If it tastes good, you're in good shape, right?
1: I mean, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to find out. Um, yeah, my brother would do this like a professional.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm using his equipment. I'm using his gin. There you go. And I just bought these, um, the citrus today. I think this is a...
0: All right, well, and so, there you
1: uh, go. My cup says, uh, laissez le bon temps rouler, and that's what I'm about to do.
0: All right, cheers, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so your parents sang to you, your mom sang to you, not particularly maybe uh, uh, musical. They weren't like playing instruments around the house. No. So what uh, got you, I assume you got into some kind of music early on in life, uh, or what was the, what was kind of your first musical experience that wasn't in the house?
1: Choir. I sang in the uh, HEB Honor Choir. HEB is the name of the school district. Um, So like the district honor choir, which is for fifth and sixth graders. Uh, My brother was in it both years. I auditioned so I was supposed to audition at the end of fourth grade to be in my fifth grade year yeah and I I chickened out I (laughs) I think I cried I was like I'm not gonna make it yeah I was so nervous it's it's laughable now but I can I feel for little fourth graders out there that you know have you know their parents or their older siblings expecting of them and uh that was me I was like I, am not going to be good enough. So I feel like a hundred percent that would, that should not have been the issue, but I was scared. I think we had to sing. Oh, what was it? Um, what did we have to sing? It wasn't the star spangled banner. It was, but it was some type of other like traditional patriotic thing. Um, Yeah, asking me questions about my childhood is always a little spotty just because um, like I'm trans and a lot of my memory is um, like forgotten. (laughs) Because in a way it didn't count.
2: Yeah, sure. (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah, I had this conversation with with Tony Silvestri actually. And uh, I told him that I feel like I uh, didn't have, I didn't get to have a girlhood. I was given I was given a boyhood but I didn't get to have a girlhood and that was like but but I say it that way because it wasn't mine. Sure. It didn't belong to me and I didn't understand that really until I was much older but I auditioned for the Honor Choir the next year and I was in it for my sixth grade year and I sang alto and that's I'm very proud of that.
0: <laughs> yeah, and was that, I mean, was that the thing that like got you on fire about music? Was it, was it, you did that honor choir and then you knew I'm excited about this and you kept doing it? Or was it uh, um, a rockier road than that?
1: I-, I loved singing with the group and like, the, like it gave me a sense of purpose early on. And,
2: yeah,
1: you know, I made some friends, but I mean, it wasn't really that social aspect. I think what it did was it, uh, made me feel more confident about singing in choir. And so my brother went to the junior high. Uh, I remember like this, all of this being new. And so my brother uh, sang in choir and took voice lessons. And then uh, when he got to ninth grade, ninth grade is high school, but in our, in our school, ninth, our school junior high was seven, eight, nine. Seven, eight, nine, yeah. Even though the ninth grade credits go towards high school very right. strange um, but that's how it how it is now and how it was then and so my brother when he got into the ninth grade he had done like all region choir and and whatnot um and i i did that too when i got into seventh grade um but when he was in ninth grade so he was in 10th grade when i was in seventh grade and so we weren't we weren't ever at the same school sure except for maybe a couple of years in elementary. Which I, I really don't remember, but um, my brother saying he auditioned for the Texas All State Choir. Uh, which, if you don't know about that, there's like a whole economy around that. Like it is, it is a whole thing. We can talk it's a about thing. that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but it's very competitive. Just like just like football, it's Texas. They're very competitive down sure. here, for better or for worse, um, and. He had to do sight reading for that audition. And when my when he made it to I think so those four rounds and I think he made it to the third round. And in the third round, they only took five. Mm. And I think my brother was like real close. It was either he went to the third round and barely missed it, or he went to the last round with the fourth yeah. round and barely missed it. But the reason he, he missed it was because um, he, because of the sight reading, he struggled with sure. the sight reading, which, I mean, ninth grade, like, yeah. come on, get your, get your yeah. shit together. Um, yeah, that was new. It was new for mm-hmm. him. And my dad probably chewed him out, I think.
2: Hmm.
1: I, don't, I don't know exactly what that looked like. I, I didn't know that happened, but what ended up happening because of that is that my brother turned around and was like, you're going to learn how to sight read. I was like, what, why, you know, yeah. what is this? So he was he was in high school and I was in, he was in 10th grade and I was uh, a seventh grader. And I remember we would, um, we would like, my mom would run errands and we'd be in the backseat of the car and we'd like sight read together. Cool. Like the ultimate nerds well, <laughs> in, yeah. in chromatic fixed dough. Cause that's what we learned. Huh. So uh, that's the selfish system that teaches you, or I guess it, I don't know if it tries to teach you, but helps to develop relative pitch
2: Yeah, sure. because
1: it teaches you the relationships between the exact like pitches. Right. And right. Um, yeah. And you know, like he, he struggled in ninth grade, but the, by the time I got to ninth grade, like everybody thought I had perfect pitch because I was read perfectly.
2: Yeah.
0: So choir obviously then is a relatively big deal. I mean, it must be a big deal if you're auditioning for, you know, honor course and stuff. Uh, do, when you graduated, did you know that music was what you were going to go on to do? I mean, was that immediately out of high school? You're like music, that's it.
1: hundred percent. Yeah. But I think for my brother, it was more a question because he, um, he wanted to do music, but yeah, I think he, my, so my bro, my brother's the oldest in the family, mm. it's just me and him. And uh, I mean, he's a young man at this point. And, you know, that there's this like older child pressure to be like, you know, be the one, you know, yeah, be, a, sure. be a good example, like go and be a doctor or a lawyer type of thing. My dad, by the way, is an attorney. You asked uh-huh. me earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah um he was he's he is now uh how do you say retired and he has an arbitration business cool so yeah that's a whole that's a whole other thing my dad has his jd um and that like he's one of he might be the only person with that uh, with any education from his family yeah um or he's probably the first at least um but uh my brother majored he went to a local college I did not I had to get the hell out of Texas (laughs) um my brother went to Texas Christian University which is in Fort Worth Mm -hmm. and he studied so he my brother has five degrees um so his yeah five or six yeah, but he, he did the, all like the advanced placement stuff. And yeah, like sure. The credits and that transferred to TCU. And he did, um, I think it's a Bachelor's of Arts in Music, a Bachelor, I think it's also a Bachelor of Arts in Biology. Those are his, and then he has a minor in Spanish. Hmm. Um, but I think his Bachelor of Arts in Music wasn't, I don't think it was a even a performance degree. Yeah, I think it was a general music degree because yeah. he actually he, he went into his first music theory classes and was like, I already know this shit. Like, I'm bored. Right. But, you know, biology was actually hard and challenging. And I don't really, you'd have to ask him because I don't really know the inside of that very much. But, um, you know, it was always that like, oh, you're going to go and do a double major, do music at the side and then go to med school. Uh-huh. you know that that type of thing yeah yeah um but my brother excelled in music and um you know he's sung in operas and um you know he he, he wanted to do the performance thing and yeah. so then he went to school at eastman school of music in rochester new york mm-hmm. and he did a master's in voice performance and then he followed up with his DMA which is in performance and pedagogy Mm -hmm. Um,
0: and so so was his uh success in music did that influence you wanting like feeling confident about going on into music or or were you just you you knew that's no matter what that's what you were going to do
1: um I would say it inspired me in the beginning, but I yeah. took a very different path because um, I explain it this way now, just because of the retrospect, like mm-hmm. I, um, I knew I didn't want to do performance because yeah. I had, um, I don't know, for lack of a better way to say like self-image issues, I had gender dysphoria is what the clinical term is. Sure, But, you know, just kind of a, a alienation from my own body. And um, I knew, so I started composing actually in eighth grade mm. because I was just really fascinated by like choral scores. And I wrote, you know, I would chicken scratch and write, you know, four bar phrases that, you know, it's like, oh, I wrote a piece of music. And I brought it to my choir director and she would, she would actually play them for me. Yeah, And that actually means a million to me because when I see her at a convention now, she'll come up to me and like hug me and stuff. And it's like a, a full circle moment because I literally would write just like some four part, four bar, like little thing that yeah. probably had the incorrect stem directions and stuff. And sure. Sure. she would play it for me and I would be like, oh cool, that's how that sounds like, thank you, you know? yeah, But, but that's like when I started and, um, you know, as I went into high school, uh, we had to study vocal literature. So I think I, I, I had purchased um, these books. They're how Hal Leonard books, uh, favorite French, favorite German. My brother had the favorite Italian a- arias, which, you know, it's like a curated little set of like sure. classical, cl- classical repertory. Um, and it came with a little CD that had the piano part. And I would listen to that over and over. And I was like, oh, I, want to, hmm. I really want to learn how to sing this. And of course, like, there, those pieces were too big for our voices back then. Sure. But I mean, like, listening to or like, or like, Nuit like, uh, you know, they, they would have the little, uh, <laughs> they would have the, the native speaker recite the text, and then yeah. the next track would be the piano part. And I was just like, I, like, Boswa, like, for example, is, I have been, like, enamored with that for decades. Yeah. And, like, I will, like, sometimes I'll just pull out my my Debussy songbook and play through the, the piano accompaniment, piano part, um, and... I was just it's still fascinating it's like one of the I, I look at the music and I'm like this is like some of the most like meaningful music that exists uh, like ever existed for yeah. me and, um, and and I had a friend who uh, in high school was taking piano lessons and I heard her playing something else by Debussy and I asked her about like what is that and like and uh, shoot, it was the first Arabesque. And I was like, I need, I need, to, I need to know that I need to have this. Yeah. I, need to, I want to be able to create this and, and, and like, hear this anytime. So I went back to the music store and I bought this book. It's probably around here somewhere. But uh, <laughs> it's like a, a, a Sparrow bound it. And it's, again, it's like a curated, yeah. probably Hal Leonard or something that is just debussy piano stuff and i would sight read that and that, like i think a lot of people when they start to study music formally it's like okay you know mozart or beethoven you know that kind of thing mine was like debussy <laughs> like let's figure out how to do these rhythms and yeah listen to how this sounds and why does this appeal to me and like you know that that was like how i and i guess began to learn music theory and like harmony yeah um and so i knew from an early start too that i was like really had an affinity for the the french composers mm-hmm. and yeah that was i knew that uh, composing music was a way for me to participate in music uh, and possibly have, have a career in music without having to be seen yeah that, without that performance factor, that's what really appealed to me about it. And so I actually only applied to, to my undergrad programs. I was like, I want to do music composition. That's what I want to do.
0: Huh. You know, I think it's interesting, um, because I, I I think that probably a lot of people in some way share that feeling about performance, right. And, And, and not, not exactly the same, perhaps, but that the voice is such a vulnerable instrument, right? And there's nothing to hide behind. And that I, I've talked about that, you know, with students all the time is that um, you know it's so scary with the voice because you know I play some instruments very poorly. I mean, I, I play piano very poorly, and I play even less guitar. That's about it. Uh, but, you know, even on like the guitar, if you mess up, you know, I, you know, it's like retune and oh, it's a messed up, it's out of tune, right? Or that oh, I just hit the wrong string or there's some, there's a barrier there, right? And the voice just doesn't offer that. I, I, you know, I, I remember uh, in high school and college, and even now, I'm, I still am horrible at memorizing things. And it's mostly, I think, because I get so nervous at high school, I, I would do solo and ensemble. And I remember my mouth, I would get so dry and my hands would shake and I, I just, I couldn't do it. And I loved making music. Right. And I, I thought I was okay at it, but it's a scary thing for anyone. Um, so I, I can imagine, um, that you had, you know, uh, other things heaped on to kind of the normal uh not normal but what what the maybe average person goes through of just the nerves and and to to add to to that um the uh that I imagine that was really difficult so it's uh it's nice that you felt like composing was an avenue for you because I, I'm sure there are a lot of people that don't really think about what the other careers are in music, right? I mean, the, the kind of public thing is like, you can either be a performer or you can be a teacher, right? You can do music education or you can go into performance. That's, I think what a lot of people perceive as really the only two options. I don't, I don't know if composing is um, at the forefront for a, a lot of young people. Um,
1: there's a couple of things. Do you, are you familiar <laughs> with uh, Dr. Christopher Harris? He teaches at Arkansas uh, Tech University.
0: I do. I know his. Na- I know. I don't know that I've met him, so, although I think I think I maybe met him in passing, at a bar in Minneapolis at a conference, maybe.
1: He's uh, <laughs> he's he was at FSU with uh, mm. Andre Thomas, mm. um, and like I said, he's now at Arkansas Tech, and um, I I'll bring him up because he's also a composer. Yeah. And he literally grew up three streets north of my street, huh. like parallel, like thing. Yeah, so he and my brother went to school together and he was composing music in high school. And he was like, I mean, if you ever meet, he's also a Virgo, you know, okay. like he's very, um, a little bit heads in the clouds. Yeah. <laughs> he might sure. be mad at me for saying this, I don't know, but he he's he he was a dreamer you know and he he had the gall to to create music as a high schooler and i remember he i think as a as a senior um he put a choir together like a high schooler and and like try to teach his music to high schoolers or maybe it was just after he graduated high school but it was just like he he just had a dream and he stuck with it. And he yeah. you know, it, it, like, I don't want to say that he's delusional because obviously <laughs> look at him now, he's like, yeah. you know, booked and hired and working. And sure, you know, he's very popular with the people that know his music. Yeah. And, they, and he should be, he, he's worked really hard for that. I, I, all I'm saying is that I, my brother went to school with him and Chris was at our house, like not all the time, but often. Yeah. And not only is he like a composer, he's, he's black, you know, and he, and he's from around here. So like, like I, you know, when we talk about like opportunity and when we talk about like equity and all those things, and they're very important things. I just realized what an immense privilege it was to, for me to, for it to be normal. It was normal for me to have somebody at our high school who composed music. Sure. And, and at that, a, a, a young black man, you know? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> that was like normal, you know? Yeah. And I, I didn't obviously, you know, know anything about like inequity or, or, sure. or about class or anything like that. But um, I think that that would, I mentioned it just because, you know, I, I hear a lot, as a woman who composes music that like, oh, we need women composers because otherwise young women might not even like entertain their dreams of composing music. Um, I I like to tell people that like, so I started my transition at the age of 19. My entire career, I have visibly to the outside world been a woman and they've always understood me as such. I've always understood myself as such my entire life, but as far as like being a man, that is just completely inaccurate um, in terms of like how my experience is, because literally no one ever knew me as a man. Maybe like in some superficial way as a boy or as male, because that's what, again, that's what I was given. That was what I was offered. Um, But that wasn't something that I ever owned. And so just to like bring it full circle, like there, there are some things that society teaches young women or girls, you know, that I didn't have to unlearn as a woman. Sure. And that's, that's a privilege of, of, in a sense, a a privilege of trans feminine experience is that because I, the world did not see me as a girl they didn't tell me that, you know, the world was smaller than it actually is. You know what I mean? Yeah. So in the same vein, like having Chris there and seeing him like put his choir together to perform some of his music that he composed and it was beautiful. Like that was normal yeah. <laughs> in my high school. So yeah, um, yeah, like I didn't know that I couldn't, that I could not do this sure to to some extent it was actually um as I I, the hardest part of being anything in art is making money off of your art that's that's the hardest part and it's the painful part like when I started like having commissions and like a lot of performances and I self-published my music and like all the emails and all the invoices and all this and all that like it's like, it can take the joy out of it a little bit. The business takes the joy out of it, but it helps you to to be able to afford to live and to um, be seen, you know? Sure. If, I, yeah. if I did music as a passion, which I don't think I would, if I spent my time doing something else, I'd be working my ass off just to afford to live.
2: Yeah. And I
1: wouldn't have time for music, which is why I moved back to Texas because I knew I could get a sure. teaching job Notwithstanding, I would have to do it in stealth, meaning people didn't know I was transgender. Sure.
2: Um,
1: I feel like I, I kind of t- took a road. No, that's good.
0: I All actually, right. Go it, this is good because I, I wanted to ask you how your drink is.
1: Oh, it's terrible.
0: <laughs> no, is it really?
1: Um, I don't know how to do this. So, I mean, it it's. I also, my brother told me no more than 1.5 ounces of gin. Yeah. And I think I did a little bit over one. And okay. I can, I feel like I can barely taste the, but.
0: The the cool. alcohol you mean?
1: Yeah. But so it's just, it's, maybe it's just a grapefruit is very dominant. And so part well, of me is like, why didn't I just eat the grapefruit?
0: So here's the thing <laughs> is. A good cocktail, you shouldn't really taste the alcohol anyway, right? You should maybe feel it, but not taste it. Um, do you know uh, why gin and grapefruit are paired together so often?
1: I have no clue.
0: <laughs> sure. So I'm not like a super connoisseur of gin. But what I do know is that gin um, is uh, has a, botanicals in it. And so a lot of people don't like gin because of sp- really specific aspects of the flavor and there are certain mixers that uh when paired with gin will sort of like cancel out some of those botanical flavors and grapefruit is one of those that will like and i don't know exactly you know i'm not smart enough to know which what it is or what the science is but grapefruit cancels out like cuts some of the harder Um, flavor profiles of gin. And so they get paired a lot together uh, because it kind of rounds out the gin or or tames it a little bit. Um, So that may be part of the reason you don't taste the alcohol too, is just the the pairing of of fruit.
1: I also put mint in it. So there's a minty aftertaste too.
0: Okay. I mean, you know, you got to experiment sometimes, right? That's the whole thing. Speaking of drinks... A first, I'm positive. I know that I met Chris Harris. I know that it was in a bar. I know that it was in a conference. I don't know if he'll listen to this, uh, but I, I think I got introduced to him by my friend Andy Morgan, who is at Hendricks uh, College in Conway, Arkansas, and they know each other, and it was like an Arkansas thing. So I'm positive I met him in passing. Now, do you remember that you and I have met in person once? Seattle. Yeah, it was in Seattle. That was a long time ago, I think.
1: I remember, I remember, yes, it wasn't like a (laughs) deep (laughs) meeting. It was like, it was like a quick meeting.
0: It was a very fast meeting. Uh, And I, I I think that I was sitting, I, I did my, my doctorate at the University of Washington. I think that I was sitting with other grad school people in a bar that's like downstairs at like a big booth. And you maybe came in with Jeffrey Boers um, f- from Possibly from UW, I think. And he, uh, I don't remember what the, even what the context was, but he was like, hey, here's Mari, meet her, you know, and, and that was it. And we like kind of said hi. And I, I actually bet we, we may not have been the most pleasant people, not because uh, we aren't pleasant, but because we were probably, drunk and commiserating as grad students are wont to do. So I'm not sure we, we probably were as inviting as we could have been.
1: It's, it's okay, I'm, <laughs> I'm from Texas. I've been living in Texas. I was there to push myself out of my comfort zone and meet yeah. people. And um, yeah, Jeffrey is very fluid and flowery. And I was uh-huh. just like, you know, I was in his bubble. So uh-huh. I walked with him and I met some cool people.
0: Yeah, well, I I, I do. Uh, I remember. Uh, I remember meeting you. I remember you being there. I don't remember anything else about uh, the evening uh, for whatever reason that was. That's
2: okay.
0: Uh, now, uh, you. The, the beauty of this uh, podcast having no real agenda is that we can skip around to all sorts of things that are just because I think they're interesting, and I hope other people find them interesting. You uh, lived and studied in France. Is that correct?
1: I did a summer program to- twice. It was just for twice.
0: July. Got it. And so, tu parles français?
1: Oui, je parle français, mais est-ce que tu vas prouver mon français maintenant? Je suis, je suis pas prête pour ça. <laughs>
0: ah, je comprends. Je parle seulement un peu de français. Uh, j'étudie à uh, Duolingo. Uh, ah, et yes. and, uh, uh, Alors, mon français est très mauvais. Uh, je comprends beaucoup quand je um, je lis, mais pas quand je uh, écoute.
1: C'est bien, c'est pas
0: grave. Je ne vais pas à la classe
1: de français maintenant. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've been looking forward to that. I, 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 uh, my French is not very good. Uh, that's uh, what you said, which is what I said. And I don't, but p- people may not know that. Uh, 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 cause not everybody listening probably speaks French, which clearly I don't very well either. I, I read French fairly well. Um, but I'm not good at, I am just not as good at languages as I would like to be, but you're a bit, uh, a bit of a polyglot you've got several languages up your sleeve is that right
1: i feel like i need to like warm up like you put me on the spot now i like, don't okay, you don't need to mine. speak all of
0: them i'm not going to ask <laughs> you to speak all of them but uh you speak uh english spanish That's my
1: native language that was my second language
0: you speak a, a, a pretty good french
1: i i tell people i'm fluent in french because i can hold a conversation yeah at a uh, decent speed
0: Brazilian Portuguese, is that right?
1: Same thing, yeah, about the same.
0: And you're learning an, an, another language, is that right? Or you, was, you were or
1: I are? I was starting to get into this Swedish uh-huh. um, because I went to uh, St. Olaf and when I was there, I did the thing that I did in high school, which is uh, peruse music scores and just like, oh, let's, this is really interesting. So in, in college, I was really into Nordic art song
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, of course, uh, everybody performed Grig at St. Olaf. Mm-hmm. They actually have a Norwegian major. So du kan, du kan la, kan, uh, how do they say it in Norwegian? Norwegian Swedish is very similar. Du kan uh, snakke på Norsk. You can speak in Nor- Norwegian there. Yeah. Um, and like major in it. I didn't do that. My roommate did, and he has lived in Denmark since graduation, basically. Uh, so he speaks Danish fluently and more or less Norwegian fluently as well. Um, and he's, uh, Korean American yeah. adoptee, um, from Minnesota. He grew up on a farm. Anyway, sure. that's the that's whole other thing. But, um, he was my roommate in college and I consider him my best friend because mm. those were very formative years for us. And yeah. he calls me whenever, even when I'm asleep, sure. um, but it's okay. Um, and he was there for me when i was like on the outside transitioning you know so yeah. we were uh we were we were really close um i didn't study norwegian but i was i remember getting to my senior year of college and being like okay i have i have another class that i get to take i no. was a nerd so it was like. Uh, this shit is fascinating this shit is fascinating this shit is fascinating I was like I'm gonna try to get into French Mm -hmm. but if I do not test if I test into the first semester of French I'm gonna just take Russian Japanese or Norwegian because I felt like I knew enough French that I was gonna be bored and taking the beginning yeah um and (laughs) luckily for me the test was written so yeah. I actually tested into the fourth semester of French, which was the last class you had to take before you qualified for the major. And I was like floored. I was like, what? They're actually letting me in the fourth semester of French. Yeah. i had never taken French before. <laughs> so I was, so I like, you know, stumbled my way through that class. But then I, con- I continued to study um, as an elective Uh, in my grad school at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music and uh, it was so fun it was it was a conversation class and oh I had so much fun it was it was that was one of my favorite things I ever did so I had an opportunity to actually use French in France which is you know I think a lot of people from the United States who take French you know that's a really big privilege so
2: yeah
1: um, you know I I'm the type of person that's like, if I don't know something, I'll figure it out. Yeah. It may not be perfect, but I'm willing to learn along the way. And because of that, like, I didn't want to just learn vocal literature. I wanted to know about the composers. I wanted to learn about the country. And uh, I was kind of more into the Finns, Mm -hmm. um, specifically like Sibelius. Um, but there's this really awesome composer named Toivo Gula. If you don't know that name, oh, I'll send you some stuff. Okay. Uh, my brother sung some of his stuff. Um, I think he he died in a, like a tragic accident at a young age, huh. so he didn't get to like blossom into like greatness. Um. Anyway, um. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna learn Finnish. I'm gonna go study in Finland because I'm about to finish seeing Olaf, and I I need to do something with my life. Yeah. And like Finland is just an awesome country. It's like a better country than more, most countries in my opinion, in some respects, but mostly because of the rain, reindeer. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's, that's my primary priority. Yeah. Um, and I think the Finnish word for reindeer is "poro." P-O-R-O. Um, yeah, so I started learning some Finnish and oh, yeah. this is so hard. And then I was like looking at like linguistic articles and stuff. And like in the United States, there's like this study done to like determine how at what age it, it takes for native speakers to become fluent in language. And use yeah. like reading a newspaper as the measure of fluency. Sure. And like if you're from like the United States, it's like 15 or 16. And like most countries, it was like if it was easy language, 13, 14. I think Chinese was maybe 17. Like Finnish was like 19.
2: Hmm.
1: So I, and then I saw the cases and like all of the little suffixes. And I was just like, girl, I can't, like, I don't have time. I don't, I have too many things to do. So then I realized that Finland has two uh, official languages, Finnish and Swedish. And oh, so that's when I started dipping into Swedish and like learning Swedish rep, Swedish yeah. and Finnish rep in Swedish. And I uh, actually set a poet poem from a Swedish-Finnish, Swedish-Finnish, I'm trying not to spit, okay. Yeah. poet named Edith Södergrön. Um, but yeah, this is like Sibelius and poets and artists from like a romantic era, you know, mm-hmm. they, they spoke Swedish as well as Finnish. I think Swedish might've been like more scholarly or something, but. Well,
0: I, I admire anybody who can pick up languages. Well, uh, I, I do not. Um, my roommate uh, during our doctoral program, Johan, uh, he, grew up in South Africa. So he knew Afrikaans and English and also spoke, can speak a little Dutch and a little German. And then just in grad school, in the three years at Washington, he learned how to speak Latvian, Estonian, and Lithuanian. Like, I, I don't know how people process language that quickly. And I, I'm sure a lot of it for people who grew up speaking multiple languages, I, it's probably easier to then learn others. But I started so I learned French a little bit in second and third grade. I was in a um, uh, program that that was part of our classes and then I didn't use it again until uh, I don't know probably eighth grade and but I remembered a little bit and I thought, well I'll sign up for French in eighth grade because I, I used to know like five words uh, and <laughs> I did it all in high school. And then I took the AP test in French and I got a one, which uh, is not good, right? You get a one if you put your name on the test. Uh, and But then I, uh, my freshman year of college, I tested out of having to take it in college. Uh, and I don't remember why that was a requirement or how that happened, but... And then I got really into German. Well, I actually backtracked. Before that, I did some like Italian. I thought, oh, I'm gonna learn Italian because I want to go to Italy, right? So I had Rose at a Rosetta Stone and I learned learning Italian and I thought I was pretty good. And then that kind of faded out. And then in college, I was uh, doing a lot of German research. So I thought, oh, I'm going to learn German. I'm going to get really good at German. And I went to Germany uh, and thought, well, I'll just speak German to everyone while I'm here. Uh, but by uh, the end of the first day, I realized that the only phrase that I really needed uh, was uh, asking people if they spoke English. Uh, because my German was just not good enough to keep up uh, with everyone. And same in, in French, we my wife and I did our honeymoon in Paris last summer and I did I got to speak French to some people and it went okay, but then other conversations went completely awry. So I'm I'm very envious of anybody who um, has a, a knack for picking up languages because I it is a, I I think what a fascinating tool and it it helps give you such, I think people who learn languages and who are good at learning languages have perhaps a broader, more sensitive, uh, uh, more informed worldview than people who do not learn multiple languages. Um, So I I think it is um, a wonderful skill to have.
1: I, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I um, am fortunate that like my mom spoke Spanish. That was her first language growing
2: yeah. up.
1: My dad had to learn Spanish like in school because he didn't get it at home. Right, And it was just kind of discouraged, which seems terrible. It yeah. seems terrible, but like, you know in the 50s when my dad was growing up like if you had if that was your language or if you had an accent then that means less opportunities for you yeah and I I think we still have that kind of thing still um but uh now that I think about it but um we had our our babysitter our caretaker was a woman or she's still here she's I saw her the other day. Um, she is from Mexico. Mm. So, um, I mean, we, at, at least, at the very least, my brother and I both grew up hearing it.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, with the babysitter, like, all the time. And I don't think I really attempted to speak Spanish until I took crosses, yeah. but it was so easy because yeah. I was, you know, those sounds were a part of my lexicon, I guess. Sure. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, and the, the it's like, you know what it's like? It's like a, a big jigsaw puzzle. And um, I perhaps started with a little bit more pieces. And because of that, I was able to use context clues whenever I tried to pick up other pieces about sure. where they might fit. So it's like using parallels from either English or Spanish to learn another language.
2: Um,
1: Like knowing one language is the key to learning the second. And knowing one for the first and the second helps you to understand the third, whether that means it's more similar to English or more similar to Spanish or in its own distinct category. Right. So like, learning Spanish, and then learning Portuguese slash French. I don't really know which one I learned first. Um, I think I'm probably a little bit more fluent in French. But it was like, you just learn you learn the patterns. Yeah. Like, um, I'm trying to think of a really uh, uh, typical word. Like, um, oh, like, OK, senor like in Spanish s e n o r means like mister or like yeah. sir um, in portuguese it's senhor and it's n h so mm. with that you understand that a consonant followed by an h it, in portuguese is basically like putting a little tilde or a a, a ya or a palatalizing yeah. It might be a technical term I don't even know if that's the right term for it but making it a, a, a glide following that so like uh or, or sueño sueño is like dream uh in Portuguese is sonho s-o-n-h-o sure. and I think I think in Italian it's s-o-g-n-o and it's pronounced very similar sonho um but it's just like once you understand those patterns you can usually like guess what yeah. things mean, or like, um, you can like. That's not always true, because like, saw is Spanish for pregnant. People think it means embarrassed, so they uh-huh. up with that a lot. Uh huh. Uh,
0: okay. We've talked about a whole bunch of different things, and we have not uh, talked about your music at all, which is okay. Um, you know, I think. It's fascinating to me um, that there are, I meet conductors who are programming composers music and, and they don't know anything about the composer. And I, I that to me seems like such an important part of understanding how to approach that person's music because I think it's hard to, it is difficult to put the sort of essence of a person on a piece of paper, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I, think, I I think, I, think that's an important, yeah, I think that's an important part of performing someone's music, right? Is that I, I wanna, uh, if I'm programming your music, I wanna do my best to bring you, your voice to the music, right? I mean, I I wanna be able to express that as much as I can. So I, I think it's good, I hope that people listening to this episode of the podcast or any others um that that's what they glean from this as a musician is that they're they're getting to know you a little bit um, and that that helps uh inform them listening to your music or, or programming your music but i do want to talk about your music uh at least a little bit um what uh what was the piece that you wrote that let you know uh, that you were a composer. And I, I, I don't mean in the, I don't mean in the, I write, I've written some music, but like the, 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 that was a career that you, when people said, what do you do? What's your, what, who, what do you do? And you could say, I'm a composer.
2: Oh, um.
0: I mean, was, was there, a piece, was there a piece that you wrote? And then you said, all right, and like, this is now what I do. I'm a, I'm a composer now.
1: Um, I mean, well, I I've literally have been trying to write music since eighth grade. Yeah. So I, I probably had some type of like, um, what's the word? Not epiphany, but just uh, conviction that that's what I wanted to do. I didn't think of it so much as a, I am. I am sure. this. this is something that I do. Um, because even before I did music, I, um, I really liked drawing and like, I wrote and, and illustrated my own comic books, which never one will ever see ever. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah. And I would, I like to paint and, you know, m- make things like I, growing up, I would ask for art supplies for Christmas every Christmas. Mm that's all I wanted somebody to leave me the fuck alone. Yeah. Leave me alone in a room <laughs> and I'm just gonna like make something with colors. Yeah. And honestly, that was like when I was a kid. And then I got into music and I just I honestly feel like I'm doing I'm I'm doing that. That's that's yeah. what I that's what people pay me to do is to go to a room alone and create a world and to yeah. and put and to put it into a piece of paper that's going to turn into music that's like minutes long well,
0: let me let me try and ask that a different way because i suppose in a sense uh uh if we do a thing we we can uh, identify as being that thing right like if you draw and you make art you are an artist whether uh, anyone else validates that for you or not right i mean by 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 creating the art, you are an artist.
2: In theory, yes.
0: Well, I mean, you are. You are. You. You may not get paid to be an artist, but you are an artist by creating art. So, uh, let me ask it a different way. Um, what was? Uh, was there a piece of music that uh, you put into the world that uh, gave you confidence that other people would say? that's a composer I want to program or that or that was a piece that you said I'm going to be able to to make uh, uh, part of my living or all of my living doing this thing well I mean was there a was there a piece <laughs> that
1: has, has given <laughs> you some
0: sense of standing as an artist I don't, I don't know if that makes sense
1: I, I I I'm not at a point where I'm making all, all of my living off of or, or part of you know what I mean
0: like people will pay me to do this I you know, that's how people uh, know. because I write
1: um, comes from composing music.
0: I, I, there are lots of things that I do that I think I do well that I will never make money for. You know what I mean? Like, no matter how good I think I am, that's not... Uh, I, uh, I, I, okay, I cook. I like to cook. I think I'm okay at cooking. And I recently started baking. Anybody who follows me on social media is probably uh, annoyed uh, with me because I post pictures of sourdough bread all the time now. I love it it's very exciting to me, but I would never call myself a chef. Uh, and no one's ever going to pay me uh, to be a chef, not even a little bit. Um, but people do pay you to write music for them. And there is a, a sense, I mean, if I said your name at a choral convention, there would be a lot of people who recognize you as a composer. And I, I'm wondering if you know when that happened. You know, I mean, what was the thing that, that got you to that point?
1: I have some comments about that. That I th- I think why, why like I don't like this question. I'm not like offended by any means, yeah. but I guess the reason I I don't like it is because I don't really get to choose like like I can write a good piece of music and it can end up like not being performed or like I can't get people to be interested in it. I think you told me about uh, you you saw my Swedish piece I think that was you somebody recently said that they, that they liked my Swedish piece that I made um but that literally never gets performed and I'm not really trying to promote it because I don't know that that's what people are looking for nowadays but you know I'm a Mexican person so I don't you know I don't if somebody comes across it and wants to do it Like, please do it. But it's just like, there's what I'm trying to say is that I'll write something that I think is fabulous. But just because I think it's fabulous or it's my proudest work, that doesn't mean anything in terms of what other people think about it. So what your question is asking me is is like a question about like validation or like what, what, what made me visible to people. And the fact of the matter is that I don't get to, I didn't get to choose that. So yeah. I, I feel I feel a certain type of way about like um, I'm so glad that I'm hired and that I consider it a a, a, a a sincere privilege that I I can make any living from composing music and self publishing and you know get commissions and that kind of thing. Um, it's like living my dream. Yeah. Ever since I was in eighth grade, right. Um, But at the end of the day, like, I don't get to uh, determine, like, how it's going to be received by the world. So in in some sense, I feel like there was music that I composed that I wish had a chance to have a life. And some of that music I wrote before, and some of it I wrote after the point at which I started getting recognized. Sure. Uh, But you're asking for a specific node in time <laughs> and i can think of at least two uh the first node is a piece that i wrote called the clause of heaven
2: uh-huh.
1: which was uh you know it's the william butler yates text that a lot of people have set um i heard that for the first time when i was in the all-state choir and i think i was a, a junior in high school i might have been a senior but the uh, I was in the Allstate Mixed Choir, so I didn't sing this piece. It was the Allstate Trouble Choir singing uh, Eleanor Daly, Canadian composer, setting um, uh, The "Class of Heaven. And I, I bought the CD from the Allstate performance. So I listened to that over and over and over. And I was just like, this is um, an incredible piece of music. And it's incredible poetry. And one day I'm going like, to write the words on a piece of paper, and one day I'm going to set it. And I did, I, I had it stowed away until my, uh, the summer between my junior and senior year in college and as a senior student. And um, that was the first summer I went to study in Paris. And that was the piece that I composed. That was like what I was working on at the time. Hmm. And so I got to work with Philip Lasser, the kind of the head of the whole program Uh, He's an incredible composer um, and uh, a a really wonderful teacher. And like that was a huge, working with him was like a big uh, validation for me. But uh, so I wrote the piece in the summer and, you know, I was a senior that year and I was doing composition major and I had sung in the St. Olaf choir uh, for three years um, Dr. Armstrong actually recorded what the St. Choir actually recorded a piece of music I wrote on um, a poem uh, that Gabriel Foray said it's the text to a Pas Un Rêve. Uh, Do you know that song? Uh,
0: I, I mean I think so. I, I know
1: the uh, I, I know the title I mean it's yeah, 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 yeah. that one uh it's like it's just like it's it's a sexy poem and so i i did this setting of it and i mean like you can go and listen to it i don't write music like that anymore i feel like my understanding was very influenced by you know your whitaker and lordson at the time but like that's not really true to who i am um, it's not a bad piece of music, but there's just things in it that like, I, I remember it took me three years to finish that piece. It's like five minutes long, but yeah. I, I wrote it and Dr. Armstrong took an interest in it on the bus when we were on tour my first year in the, cho- in the choir and we recorded it and I used that for my audition um, to get into this uh, program in Paris so I, I got to the program and then I wrote the Clause of Heaven and um, Dr. Armstrong said he wanted to, well, what, what happened was I did my senior recital and um, I knew I made the right decision going to St. Olaf. I just, I knew it. I knew it. I, I, I was, so, I felt so good there. I, that's where I started my transition. I just like, I did college right. I did not waste a minute. And I, you know, built relationships and took all the classes up. I like sucked it for all it was worth, you know? And, um, so my senior recital included four art songs, four choral pieces with a choir of 25 people. Um, most of them were members of the senior role of choir. Sure. Um, and a woodwind sextet and, uh, two brass quintets and a piece with tuba, solo, and string quartet, and uh, one short piano solo, I think, I think it was it. Yeah, sorry, yes, that was it. So like I had 40 people participate in my senior composition recital. Dr. Armstrong came to my recital and he told me that he wanted to take one of my pieces, from the recital and, and perform it on, uh, it's called Celebration Weekend, which is basically um, the last event uh, before graduation sure. that St. Olaf Choir always sings at. And we did The Cost of Heaven, and that was, he took it to Earth Songs and, and got it published under the Anton Armstrong Choral Series. Mm. Um, and that, you know, that was the beginning of opening a lot of doors. Um, it didn't open all the doors. Sure. But it opened, it started to open, open doors. He performed my, The Clause of Heaven at the Oregon Bach Festival. So I wrote it in 2009 and then he performed it at the Oregon Bach Festival the summer of 2011. And um, I had, he said something when I was a student, when we were working on it, that he was like, you know, this should be a cello solo, like at the very beginning. And I was like, <laughs> okay so i ended up orchestrating the piano part as a grad student with david conti um mm-hmm. and i put a cello solo there for him so it was a strings and heart and um I it doesn't get performed that way very often but that was and you know what i probably should go and revise that score i i, I think i can make it a lot better now that i yeah. have a master's and i've been around you know but at that time i you know I just I did what I knew and I put something together and they recorded it beautifully and that's like still one of the best recordings of my music that exists anywhere Hmm. um I mean I like I it's crazy to me because like I don't I there was a lot that led up to that point but looking back, I don't really think about all the things that led up to that point. Um, so that's the first node. The yes. second node is yeah. When Thunder Comes. When Thunder Comes was commissioned by uh, Jane Ramsey Miller and One Voice Mixed Chorus out of the Twin Cities, of Minnesota. They are, if not the largest, one of the nation's largest like uh, LGBTQ-associated SATB mixed choruses.
0: It, I was just listening. That was the song I, I had just clicked stop on right before you joined our call uh, today. So that was the last kind of sound in my ear before we started chatting today. Okay, sorry. So tell me about that.
1: Um. So it really starts with, you know, I was just doing the Swedish thing and I was doing, sure. setting poems that I probably shouldn't have been setting the old dead white men and you know, just doing whatever, uh-huh. I didn't know what I was doing. I wanted to like study in Finland at one point, you know? Yeah. And maybe move, move there and like find somebody who would accept me and love me. Um, I, then it was the 2015 ACDA National Convention. First time ever, it was Josh Palke who's now at CSU, uh, uh, Long Beach, um, California State (laughs) University, Um, Bob Cole Conservatory Music. You have to say the whole thing.
0: I know. Oh, Um, I know. (laughs)
1: uh, Yeah. And I mean, he and Jane, just the short version is he and Jane in particular are like on top of Anton. The three of them are like the biggest, as far as conductors go, are the biggest purveyors of my music. Like they're they're pushing and helping and like i owe so much to jane i owe so much to josh and i owe so much to anton Um, enormously like i'm gonna be a mess when i can't like talk to them again (laughs) like they have made a huge difference in my life forever and ever and ever um so josh and uh, paul caldwell who's with Mm -hmm. the seattle choruses i he has also commissioned me and uh, that was another peak. You asked me about particular pieces, but as far as like premieres go, like I got to conduct a piece that I wrote um, on a text by my, I call them my poet, Amir Abiyah. Um, they're a trans uh, poet that I work with. Um, intersectional identity, writes beautiful poetry, that, that can connect humanity like I, I'm, I'm giving you the short version um, but I've worked with Amir on like five different commissions now um, but I composed a song about it was uh, an analogy about coming out of the closet and I got to uh, conduct the Seattle Men's Chorus hmm. um, that's the name of it notwithstanding the art trends Women and trans men in that choir, mm-hmm. um, uh, TTBB ensemble, in um, their program called "Born This Way" in 2017. I wore a big poofy dress and I conducted, you know, the whole choir. Which I don't. I had 200 to 300 people, maybe. Some, it's yeah. a lot. It was a, a big lot. group. It was a big TTBB ensemble, and I got to work with them in rehearsal they treated me like royalty. It was like, I, I never had an experience. Like it was like beyond validation. It was like, I, I it was like the best thing I ever did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's necessarily true because I've had, I've had some like superlative moments but that was definitely one of them. Yeah. At the opera house there in Seattle, this yeah. was in 2017. Um, but that piece crossing is not one that a lot of people know because yeah. they don't go to women for ttbb music
0: <laughs> well uh and and i think that is certainly historically been true um boy i i mean i think people are getting better about it and 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 trying uh i think people are trying um but uh, you're right. Um, I want to ask you if you uh, can think of, cause I, I I'm hoping we have a, a wide intersection of uh, listeners to this. I don't know if anybody's listening to this, but I hope people are listening and uh, I hope that uh, some of the people listening might be high school choir directors. Um, I know that sometimes, uh, you know, I taught high school for six years in Las Vegas. I think sometimes high school directors, Um, can feel overwhelmed trying to find repertoire uh, because they have so much else going on on their plate. And it is easy to program repertoire that is either kind of in front of you or given to you or that you've heard other people do or that you know traditionally works or composers that you know well. It is harder uh, to to find new music by new composers, um, it can be intimidating and overwhelming. So I hope uh, that I'm highlighting some pieces through these uh, episodes that high school directors can look for. Can you think of uh, a piece uh, or two of yours that would work well for a high school choir? Any any voicing, doesn't doesn't matter, voicing.
1: Honestly, I think a lot of my music would Uh, However, I I probably, in terms of difficulties, my music is probably closer to uh, more difficult for high school. I Um, I
0: would agree. I would agree with
1: that. But I mean, I have, I've had a middle school do the Clause of Heaven. Yeah. Um, The Clause of Heaven is one of those pieces that, if you're a high school choir director, I have full confidence that you can do that with your choir. Mm -hmm. Um, When Thunder comes, uh, that's a little bit harder. a lot of the, I, it just really depends because I've written a bunch of stuff now, and some of it I don't I don't write specifically for one choir or I mean mm. like I'm I write for the choir that I'm commissioned to write for. Sure. And Sometimes you know it's appropriate for one choir or or not. I've I've been asked before about like writing children's music, and I'm just like or like middle school, and I'm like I know I probably don't have much in my portfolio in terms of that age group but I hope that choirs like high school choirs that want to do my music will do it and I hope that um I hope that they would because um a lot of my music talks about really adult things and I think people that age really appreciate sincere and difficult conversations rather than choir directors who are too scared to have those conversations or their administration that doesn't want them to have those conversations Um, but I mean if you're a high school student you have a cell phone you see everything sure like everything they 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 have less innocence than my than my generation did you know and I realized that when I was teaching high school and I was just like nothing is going to surprise these kids
2: you
0: know (laughs) well yeah and you know it's interesting it is um uh i'm sure not by accident but it has been sort of a theme uh now and this is we're in our third episode of this podcast and it's sort of come up as a theme um the idea that choral music has such an opportunity to talk about more than just pretty flowers and you know all the there's so much music that is um kind of sweet and pretty and light and what an opportunity we have as artists who use our voice and, and use language to talk about not just those things but to talk about the really difficult things and and to connect with people about the things that make them feel right um and and so I, I hope that people are programming your music because you write a lot of music that, that talks about things that make people feel and how important is that right now? You know, I, uh,
2: yeah.
1: Um, I mean, I, I write that music because that's what people are paying me to write. It's, I'm writing to the times, but sure. it's because that's literally where my money comes from. It's, I'm yeah. invested in that because they're invested in that music being written. And I, I just, you know, I love working with high schoolers because that's the age that I fell in love with music. And that's a game changer for people. If, if they have, uh, even if they don't pursue it as a career, like understanding, having a love of music, teaching the love of music and, and having that established in your adolescence will change your life forever, mm. you know? if you can read music even more cuz you'll be, always be able to create music in your adulthood and if you you know want to do it for your career certainly of course yeah um i would also comment that like um when you said that like it's hard to find new music um <laughs> i was going to shout out um graphite mm-hmm. which i'm not a part of graphite yeah i mean if anything I don't even know if I can call them my competition because I'm not that important. But graphite, yeah, yeah. graphite, and um, what's the other one? Uh, music spoke. Mm-hmm. I feel bad that it took me that long to remember. Music spoke is a really interesting. Um, I also am not a part of them, although I have very sincerely considered becoming part of them. Um, I would, I would encourage middle school and high school directors to like live on those websites and consume all of that music because those people they're very serious they have the connections they're at the conferences they have the infrastructure to like deliver that and they are networks of of living composers that you know you can call and and talk to on the phone or or whatever so and that's what we want as composers we want that connection whether you pay us or not like yeah that that's the that's what's joyful about making music because you get to meet so many people and and you know i have i have no real idea of the number of people who have sung my music up to this point but it's a lot Yeah, you know? and that is that is pretty cool you know yeah. but i you know, and, and I, I see that as a privilege, but what I'm saying is those, I guess businesses are, are trying to do that work. Um, and, and really who the, who the real competition might be is like JW Pepper. Of course, JW Pepper is not a, uh, a publisher by any means. Um, and I, I work with JW Pepper um, sometimes. But I mean, to, to put it bluntly, JW Pepper it has the monopoly. So if yeah. you want, if you want to have your music on reading lists at, at national conferences, uh, they have to have your PDF essentially, you know, because yeah. they have to be able to show it in, you know in their book and has, you know, you can keep your copyright, but they're gonna, they're going, it's gonna be in their book, and so. Um, especially here in Texas like my goodness there's so many musicians that grow out of here that the K through 12 programs so many especially around the cities you know this is a, a, a class thing but we grow so many musicians here that are very competent We Texas can be the frontier of new music it could be but once you graduate college there seems to be very little funding or interest put towards any of that there's hmm. no thirst for new music, the people that are that are, you know, forming choirs and and performing, I would say only very recently took any interest in new music. When I lived in San Francisco, it was the complete other opposite. It was quantity over quality. And mm-hmm. I don't mean that as a read, but it's just like they were very addicted to premieres. Yeah. Know? And everybody performed everybody's music, which sounds wonderful, but it's a very different environment where here, there are so many competent musicians, so many composers making so much uh, exciting new music and uh, exciting new singers and choirs and conductors, but like the, um, and the numbers and the money, but it's old money. So there's just the, the, the hunger for new music is not here when we literally have the forces to do whatever the hell we want here in texas we have everything we would ever need to be the place but it's it's culturally not there and what they do have is jw pepper and they get this they get those there's something called the prescribed music list the pml which Mm -hmm. is you know I've, i've had people tell me you know mari it's what's even better than having a piece on a on an all-state list where, you know, your piece is selected for the Allstate Choir and you, uh, within a month, sell anywhere from 8,000 8, to 20,000 copies of music, hard copies, you know, yeah. through, the, through the vendors. Like, you sell a bunch of music, you make a, a decent amount of money. What's even better than that is having something on the PML that's popular because uh, all the high schools in Texas have to perform music off of the prescribed music list. And let me tell you, up until 2020, there was uh, a minstrel song on the PML. And, uh, and you not just up,
0: in Texas, right? I mean, when that's. When you look at
1: Tinta Cash, when you look up Jocelyn Hagen, when you look up Abby Batinas, like they might have one yeah. from those composers on the list. And these are my my colleagues. They're, these are my friends from St. Olaf. They graduated years ahead of me, and I look up to them and ask them for advice and whatnot. And it, It's just appalling in the sense that like they have so little recognition in the PML and like they're white, (laughs) you know? (laughs) They're white, they're popular. Um, So it's just like, there's so much, hurry it up people, get your shit together. Like it's 2021, like we are missing out on so much brilliance.
0: You know, I have so many thoughts on prescribed music lists. It, I, I could talk about it for hours. I'm sure that I would make people angry. I'm not sure that I would care. We don't have time to get into all of it here. But suffice it to say, um, some music traditions are good because the music is good. Some new music is is great. Uh, uh, music, and some of it may not last, uh, you know, the test of time or whatever that means, but I don't know if it matters. Music is, one of the things that, about music that is so great is that it's um, instantaneous, right? It's happening now. We're we're experiencing a moment, Um, and that doesn't mean that everything that ever gets written maybe needs to be performed uh, by the greatest of, of ensembles on the greatest of stages, but um, it, the, the moment matters as much as whether or not it, it will last. So um, there's a lot to unpack in uh, uh, what you just said, but I, I hope people understand the value of programming living composers and being able to interact with them and what a value that is in, in, in being able to speak to the people who are writing the music uh, and to get inside uh, all of that um i want to ask you about uh some things that are not uh that at all not music <laughs> not choral music related not uh heavy at all uh just some some quick hitter stuff because we're uh, uh we've been chatting for a long time which is lovely i appreciate that i want to talk uh just light stuff uh so quick one hitter kind of things uh are you is there any uh pop Artist, I hate the term pop music, I've talked about that before. Uh, but uh, radio, uh, you know, commercial music, whatever you want to call it, any uh, kind of music like that that you're really into right now?
1: Uh, oh, right now, yeah. Um,
0: Anybody has you excited? Any songs, artists? I thought
1: you were just gonna say, like, who's my favorite, like, artist? I was gonna say Björk, but I haven't listened to Björk in a while. Okay, I love Björk. Okay, um, right now. Right now, who am I into right now? Oh, that that I have I do have an answer for right now. There's this artist named Shamir, S H A M I R, and I think that's what he just goes by. But uh, he's really young; he's like in his 20s. Um, very like gender ambiguous, and his singing is very gender ambiguous. Um, black, I think he's from New York. Um, okay, but, like great music. Great, Great musician.
0: I'll have I'll have to look him up. Uh, are you Are you a television person? Have you been binging anything like uh, so many of us have been during the quarantine?
1: Uh, oh, um, like Netflix, you mean? Sure. What have I been watching? I haven't been watching a lot. I've been working a lot. <laughs> but, yeah. Good. Um. um Let's see. I'm trying to think. I watch anime. I like anime. Okay. I'm trying to think, like, what's the last thing that I saw and full? I'm watching this. You're going to think this is stupid. <laughs> <But> <laughs> <laughs> it's this anime called, uh, I think it's the full title is The Time I Was Reincarnated as a Slime.
0: Well, I, no, I wouldn't. I don't think it's stupid. I don't know anything about it. It's
1: a really good anime.
0: <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of anime fans out there. I'm not one of them. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure there are a lot of them. Uh, okay. Uh, how about uh, food? If uh, last meal you could have like, what would be the, the like, favorite go-to, this is, this is my
2: meal?
1: Uh, like an Indian buffet. A little okay. bit of everything. I love Indian food. Okay, yeah, I, I'm not good in the kitchen. I'm I'm just like when you said that, I was like, I bet you're a good romantic partner because like you're good in the kitchen. And well, that's like, that's, that's like a big thing. That's like a really big thing. Um, I'm not, but I love Indian food. Okay,
2: that's so, good. Take me to uh,
1: Indian food anytime, and I will be your best friend.
0: All right, are you uh, are you a reader? Do you do you read a lot of stuff?
1: I, I mean, I, I feel like I go in and out, but I, I've been, I have been so busy. That's why I wanted to do this, because I was like, this yeah. is very different. Um, no, not lately. I have, I have books I want to read. Yeah. Uh, Adrian, Adrian Marie Brown, uh, what's the book called? Pleasure Activism or something like that. Okay. That's the one I want to read next.
0: Okay. Uh, when was the last time you took a vacation?
1: Oh, um, I, like really, really, yeah, probably, really. <laughs> um, I took a trip with somebody that I'm dating, um, long distance to, uh, actually to a premiere. My brother performed some of my music at his university, uh, in 2019, um, it's a work in progress. It's a song cycle, um, and then I we went to Oja Caliente, which is like a spa with like springs, hot springs, something nice. and like you go into all of them. There's one where you cover yourself in mud and it dries and you take it off and it just like makes you feel like an infant. And then <laughs> okay. and then I went to go get a massage and I like the I like the uh, the rocks you know, and then you go into the little like steam room with the menthol and like every, all the like demons leave your body. And then like (laughs) you come out and I, no joke, I picked up my phone and it was heavy like a brick. And all I could think was I'm sad that I have been so cruel to my body that I didn't realize how heavy this phone was that's how relaxed
0: i was i uh uh, i think we probably all need that i think we all need that i mean i would say after 2020 uh i would say after the previous four years uh i would say there are a whole lot of reasons uh that we all need that uh not the least of which is just living in america in the 21st century and being overworked and underpaid and busy and everything else so uh, I am envious that you got that, uh, what sounds like a lovely, lovely spa vacation, uh, and I hope that you get another one soon, and that many of us get another one soon. Um, I see, you look like you're pouring the last few drops I'm out fine. there. Like,
2: you well,
0: that's, that's good. Do you have a few left? Can we, we, we can uh, maybe wrap, I've got a, a last <laughs> little... And we can cheers and toast, and that'll be our, that, that'll be that. Yes. So cheers. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for joining me for episode three of the Composer Happy Hour, presented by Whatever and Ever, Amen. Thank you to my guest, Mari espel Verde for spending some time with us. When you finish here, you should go and check out Mari's YouTube channel, which includes many videos of her work. Click subscribe, show us some love. We would also love for you to show us some love, and you can do that in a few ways. Subscribe to our podcast and whatever service you're using, and please consider giving us a five-star rating if you're on Apple Podcasts. This is super helpful. If you really enjoyed the show and you want to help support future episodes, you can buy us a beer by visiting our page at buymeacoffee.com slash choir. That's right, you heard me, buy us a beer. Visit buymeacoffee.com slash whatever choir to help support the podcasts and future projects by whatever and ever, amen. Our guest next time is Dale Trumbor, and we look forward to sharing another drink with you then. Thanks again, everyone. Cheers.